The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Word there. Colossians 1, 24. If you don't have a Bible, uh, stick up your hand and one of our ushers will get that for you. But we're going to continue in this series where we left off last week, just going verse by verse and passage by passage through uh, this great book here. And last week, um, and we were reminded of the greatness of God and the, 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 the saving of Christ to turn enemies into friends. What a thought that we are uh, a friend of Christ, once his enemy, once hating him, and now in relationship with him as his friend. But maybe this has uh, brought a question to your mind uh, as you've been following Christ. Well, now that I am Jesus' friend, what should life look like? You maybe have some expectations uh, about that, uh, um, expectations that are derived from your own heart, your own dispositions, the things that you want and, and things, or maybe they're expectations based on how you've been discipled. Those who've influenced you, maybe you're newer to Christ, or maybe you've been walking with Christ a long time, but you've been discipled with some expectations. And maybe this morning as a friend of Christ, you're thinking, man, now my, I, he's promised me the easy life full of comfort and without pain. The easy life, I mean, he is God, right? He has uh, all of his resources, uh, all the resources of the world at his disposal. And so now as a friend of Christ, you get everything you've ever wanted and you don't have to do anything that you've never, or you don't want to do. Is that your expectation of following Christ? Maybe it's the expectation of the affirmed life. Because he's God. He loves us completely. There's nothing we can do to, uh, uh, to, to increase or decrease his love for us. So life is full of approval and, and, and uh, devoid of rebuke. Where everyone around, all God's friends and you, telling you how great you are. Maybe you've expected the purpose-driven life. You have ambitions, you have goals, you have dreams. And now, because God is a great God, your life will be full of God fulfilling your dreams and, and without any possibility of failure, where everything goes exactly according to your plan and you get recognized for how great of a Christian you are. Is that your expectation? Is this truly of life, of following Jesus, a life that pleases God? Is this the type of life we should expect and even pray for, as we were told to in verse 10? Well, I think our text reveals for us today what we should expect as the normal Christian life. Paul is uh, giving the example of his life, and this his life is not just some extraordinary life, like, oh, he's, a, he's super holy, he's an apostle. Well, of course his life is like this. No, no, I would submit to you that this, what we will see today, is normative for a follower of Christ, a friend of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus' life on this earth modeled this as well. This was Jesus' life. This was Paul's life. And therefore, we should expect our life as well. And so we can boil down the text to this kind of fundamental truth. When following Jesus, expect a life like Jesus. You take nothing else away from today. Take that away. Write that down. When following Jesus, expect a life like Jesus. And so let's read our text, and you'll see what I'm talking about, and you'll see these things to expect. Look at your copy of God's Word. Do you write that down? Beginning in chapter 1, verse 24, and we'll take it actually all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. We'll bypass that chapter break. God's Word says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word for God's people. Now, interesting uh, passage of Scripture, is it not? An interesting description of Paul of his own life to the, uh, Philipp- or the Colossian believers there, that church that is not boasting, but just is explaining his life and a life that mirrors Christ. Now, remember with me just a few pieces of historical context. Or if you're new with us today, maybe this is new information to you, but it's important for our understanding of what he's speaking of here. For this is Paul, the apostle, a man mightily used of the Lord, that was church planting throughout this uh, region here, Colossae in modern-day Turkey. But he's uh, not there with them. He's in prison. Prison in Rome, likely, and he had actually never met these people that he is writing to. Uh, it's Epaphras, a man who was uh, likely saved under Paul's ministry that uh, uh, he had been discipled by, but Epaphras came back to Colossae, was then a deacon or servant, a minister of this church, and now he's gone to visit Paul in prison, brought this report, and likely carried this letter back to them. And what he had brought to them was both a letter of encouragement or a report of their growing faith, but also of the threats that that uh, were creeping into this church. Like in every era, like in every culture, ours included, false teachers, false ideas creep into the body of believers. And though he doesn't name it outright in the whole book, there were these cultural influences, one of Gnosticism and the other of a Pharisaical legalism. Gnosticism being a special knowledge, you know, uh, that thing, like if you know, you know kind of thing, right? Like of, the, of the, those that uh, have this kind of special insight to the things of this world and the things of God specifically. And they themselves denied Jesus as being God. Yes, he was a man. Nobody can deny that he was actually a real human being on the face of this earth. But they would deny that he was actually God, that the fullness of deity did not actually dwell in him. And on the other side, they uh, had this, uh, this uh, Judaistic legalism or a pharisaical legalism that was insisting on works, insisting on traditions, insisting on uh, following a strict adherence to the Old Testament law and through an ethic of, that was devoid of love and grace. And these influences were trying to, in a word, disciple them trying to influence them. And, you know, in much the same way, these things creep in. And if we're undiscerning, they will influence us. They'll disciple us of conspiracies and legalism and, and, and all manner of things that are uh, teaching us to have these expectations about what life is like, what God is like, and how we should then follow Jesus. 
But what our text does for us really is course corrects, doesn't it? Course corrects our own thinking, our own influences here, our own expectations about what following Jesus is actually like. Now that we are no longer his enemies and now his friends, what can we expect when we faithfully follow Jesus? Well, here's the first one from verse 24. We should expect suffering for the sake of others. If you're taking notes, write that down. There will be five things to expect this morning when we are faithfully following Jesus. And the first is suffering for the sake of others. The now in verse 24 that you see connects us to the previous truth of God's reconciling work and Paul's commission to be a minister of it. But then he says something that's really profound, doesn't he? I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, when's the last time that you were hurting or deprived and you said, you know what? I'm really happy about this, Right? You got COVID, and you're like, man, I'm so happy I got COVID, right? I mean, back in the day when you got a 14-week, or 14-week, a 14-day break, well, that was actually kind of nice, right? Now, if anybody who's gotten it recently, now that they've, you know, decreased your, your bench time to only five days, y'all are, you're getting gypped, right? Missing out 14 days, now fine. No, no. But yeah, maybe it's a diagnosis. You went to the doctor, told you the news you didn't want to hear, you know what? I rejoice in this. I'm so happy that you told me that, doctor. Maybe people are saying hurtful things, maligning your character, saying untrue things about you at work, and you're like, you know, I'm so happy about this suffering. And yet that's what Paul's saying. It has to be grace-enabled, doesn't it? has to be because of what Christ has done. It has to be because of Christ's example here. And he has a specific type of suffering in mind, not just any only suffering, but a suffering for their sake, a, a, a suffering that happens to the benefit of other people, a sacrifice in life, a sacrifice of comfort, affirmation, or whatever it might be, out of love for the people of God. He, he's likely, very specifically speaking, of his imprisonment being chained and, and in prison now. Why? For preaching the gospel, for being a believer. And now he's in prison and facing the harsh reasons it doing in them. It is encouraging their faith. It's giving them the strength to continue on. It's giving them the endurance that they need. He is rejoicing that he is being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And what he says then after that is maybe at first glance, maybe it seems erroneous, even heretical. He says, For, uh, in my flesh, like in his own body, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, if we, we, if we just kind of speed over that, 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 that should cause me like, wait, 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 what's he saying here? Because is anything lacking in Christ's work, especially if we're speaking of the death of Christ, was Christ's death insufficient to save you? May it never be. His death was once for all for the forgiveness of sins. There is nothing left yet to be done on God's part or your part to be saved. His death was sufficient to save you. His death was sufficient to turn you who are an enemy into his friend. There is nothing lacking. You will never reach the bottom of his resources in any regard. His death was sufficient to appease the wrath of God and to declare you righteous before the Father. Praise God for that. There's nothing. So it's afflictions is not then. Here's what we say. Like, afflictions must not be re- referring to death, but to distress. 
to Christ's suffering. So what Christ did on our behalf, and here's the other thing, when we think of filling up in the biblical concept of this, don't think of like a jar that only is like half full, that, it's need, that, it's in, uh, that it needs to be filled up to, uh, to the brim, but rather think of like a sail that is being filled with wind and propelled along. And so what Paul is saying here is my sufferings are following in line with Christ's sufferings, and now the baton is being handed really to us. To other believers here, in a sense, he's saying we're just continuing this pattern of following Christ, of continuing to suffer just like Jesus did. He is, he is uh, uh, sharing it with us, just like Paul said, to the Corinthians. Like, just listen to this, 2 Corinthians 1, 5 through 7. You mark that down and read it later. And it says this, For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Right? We, we share it. It's been given to us. And you're like, wait, how? Like, why? Well, he suffered. Guess what? If the, yeah, <laughs> what should be normal in our life? What should we expect when we're following our master? Suffering as well. It says, it goes on, it says, though, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. It's producing something in others. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Praise God for great examples, right, that have gone before us and taught us how to suffer with joy for Christ. For our hope for you, goes on, is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. What should we then expect, church, as believers to suffer? And the more we suffer, what is added on? What's heaped on in abundance? Comfort. Comfort. The more we suffer, the more God, by His Spirit, comforts us in the midst of all this. But here's the thing. We're not really big fans of suffering, are we? We don't get excited. Yes! And yet, it is normative. This is normal for the Christian life. Like, remember what Jesus said when He called people to follow Him. Matthew 16, uh, 24. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, In other words, follow me, be my friend. If anyone would come after me, let him feel good about himself, get everything he's ever wanted, and have now great purpose and fulfill all of his dreams. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The call to being Christ's friend, to faithfully following him, is a call to suffer, even potentially to die. That's the cross. It's a call to suffer and die. And the grace we need to endure through it, to patiently endure the same sufferings, is to know that it is purposeful. It is purposeful. And God has an infinite number of purposes in doing all these things, right? Sometimes it's the work in us that He's doing. As we saw in Job 1 and 2, we know He is doing a purifying work in us. And yet there are also uh, uh, external purposes that He's doing. And this is what He's bringing us to here. It's repeated twice. It's bookended in the verse here. He says, I'm suffering for your sake and Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. It's an external purpose. For Paul, it was specifically for the Colossians and in Christ, it was general for the church here to be those, to be called to sacrifice much for the blessing of many. This is what it's called. This is what we do. We sacrifice much for the blessing of many. This is what love is. Love synonymous with sacrifice. 
love to the point of suffering and even death so that others would be blessed and grow and trust in Christ. Though I wouldn't put you know, things like this necessarily in the suffering category, but right behind it in a sacrificial service, our parenting is in this category. We continue to sacrifice for the blessing of our kids. We, uh, our, our service for you who serve like week after week in our church, saying no to other opportunities, giving your first and your best to the church so that Jesus is worshipped and many are blessed. This is what we do. This is just the sacrifice or the, the expectation of our life is we sacrifice much for the blessing of many so that when true suffering does come, it's just the next step in honoring and following Christ. It's just the next step in denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus of being like him. So what's so beautiful about this is these aren't just commands that, you know, Christ uh, uh, commanded from his throne and told us to go and do. But he humbled himself and came to earth and showed us how to do this as well. See, when we're following Jesus, we should expect a life like Jesus when he calls us to suffer. See, here's the thing. Jesus suffered for our sake too, did he not? Which is the message of the cross, right? It's, it's what we see all throughout the Gospels in life. It's like in John 19, just very simply, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, really mocking, Hey, hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. And he did that for our sake. He stood there and took it, a punishment that our sin deserved. He suffered for our sake. They had no idea what they were doing. No idea who they were pummeling. It was a mystery that was once hidden, and now we know. So here's the beauty. As we faithfully follow Christ, what do we expect? Well, we expect suffering for the sake of others. But here's the second thing. We expect a stewardship of the gospel ministry. See, a stewardship is a, is a gift. It's, a, it's something that's been entrusted to us. Suffering for the sake of the gospel is a gift from God. Paul would also tell that to the Philippians, Philippians 1.29, uh, to their church. While he was in prison, he's saying, this is God's grace. This is a gift to you. Your gifts, your ministry opportunities, your suffering are gifts from God to make the gospel known. Like, wait, what? How, how can that be? Yes, like, it is our opportunity to say uh, over and over, this hurts. Yes, I've given up this much, but you know what? Following Jesus is worth it. I want a message that is attractive, then God will use, say that in the midst of your suffering, use it as a stewardship of the gospel ministry. And it's been happening over and over, over and over since, all throughout the Old Testament, all over and over since the cross. Like what he says here, he's become a minister according to the stewardship from God. It was given to me for them. What was the stewardship? What's the, what is the mystery? That's the word of God fully known. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And it was hidden for ages, generations, now revealed to his saints. And so, so like, note this here. It's like bits and pieces of Jesus that were revealed to Israel all throughout our Old Testament, right? Like, as you read through your Old Testament, it is building an anticipation for the coming Messiah or Savior who we now look back on and know was Jesus. It's all, it's just dropped in all these hints, all these allusions, all these types, all this foreshadowing of the great one who would come. You know, and we love uh, like uh, storylines like the Marvel movies, don't we? Like, yeah, 
Some of us have watched them all over and over and over and over again, and it all culminates in Endgame, right? And Endgame, it, you can watch it on its own, but it becomes way more profound after you've watched all, like I was told in the first service, there's 22 movies in the whole series leading up to it. And as you, but if you've watched them, you begin to see like, oh yeah, they foreshadowed that, they put that there, and it's some brilliant screenwriting. And if God's people can like mirror that and just have some brilliant screenwriting over several decades leading up to this, how much more infinitely wise, how much more infinitely creative is our God that over human history, he dropped all these hints. He dropped all these things so that when Christ would come, we would say, that's the mystery. He's the one. He's the hope of glory. And now he lives in us. We now have been given a stewardship to the treasure that that message is, to see Christ all across the pages of Scripture, the greatness of His glory, whom we now know as Jesus, and we've been entrusted with this great gift. Entrusted with it to, 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 uh, uh, and, and told to just go and spend it. You know what a stewardship is, right? It's like being given something that doesn't belong to you, but then told to steward these resources. Like, who's that? Lonnie, you have a credit card? Can I have it? Can you give it to me? See, now I'm, Lonnie has given me a stewardship of uh, all his vast resources, telling me to go and spend and trusting me with something. And what's that? Not Ben, just me? Yeah. Now he's given it to us all, right? You can have it back, Lonnie. Thank you. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot. Guy in the first service asked, didn't have his wallet on him. So, Do you get it here? We've been given a great, the, the treasure to save the world, to solve the world's problems, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our, the expectation then as we follow the Lord, as we are his friend, that we steward this message, that we steward the gospel treasure, that we, uh, we realize we've been given a life, a ministry, a job, a family, the influence with the people around us, and it is a stewardship. God is now using us to make known this gospel mystery, to make known uh, Christ. We call it our unafraid witness. And now these people, God has given us this job, this stewardship here, just as Christ came and bore witness to himself. He came and told the world he made known the mystery because he was the mystery. And now he has given us a job and said, now go and shine the light. Tell people this message. This is it. This is what Jesus himself did. He came, made it known his whole life was a mystery or, or, or a stewardship of the gospel mystery in his teachings, uh, adding clarity to the Old Testament in his life and in his doing, seeing Old Testament prophecies come uh, uh, fulfilled. And now we then too get after the work of telling others. As John brings us out right at the beginning of John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He'll jump jumping ahead, he says, for the law was given through Moses, right? The glimpses of it, the mystery hidden for ages and generations in the law here. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We get after the work of telling others as well. What's a life of faithfully following Jesus? Well, we expect suffering. We expect a stewardship. And we hear the third point. We expect to strive to proclaim then that gospel message. Keep going on here to verses 28 and 29. What do we expect? Striving to proclaim the gospel message. Now in verse 28, who's the hymn referring to? It's referring to 
Jesus, right? Him we proclaim. What does it mean to proclaim? To announce. To herald. It's a message we've been given to point to or direct our thoughts and gaze and attention towards somebody else. And this is just for preachers, right? Him preachers proclaim. I mean, yes, it's certainly not less than that. But him, we, guess who's included in we? All y'all, wall, right? A word we love. It's all of us. We all proclaim him and have this responsibility. We are continually through our life. This is what we expect. A life now of not pointing to ourselves, not proclaiming how great we are or what we can do, but a life of proclaiming the glory of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? What does this even look like? Well, the text tells us the two ways in which we do it. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. The warnings, or maybe your Bible says admonishing, are those moments in life when we're following Christ, eyes fixed on Him, and in another brother or sister's life, we say, hey, don't do that. No, 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 no don't, don't think that way. If, if you continue to think that way or act that way, you're going to hurt yourself. This is not the way of faithfulness uh, uh, towards, uh, uh, towards in following Christ. It's a, it's a warning. And, and as believers, we do this in the midst of community. This is normal here. I know we live in a culture that does not like this, but we speak into one another's life as an act of God's grace. I heard Paul Tripp say this, this last week, warnings in the Bible are an, uh, are, are an act of grace. If it had gone to condemnation or judgment, they'd be cut out. But even to warn or admonish someone is an act of of grace to say, hey, don't, don't, don't do that. No, this is the way of faithfulness in our teaching. But here's, and here's the thing. Let me just warn us all and teach us all in this. Warning and all this, this doesn't mean that we take to social media to lambast everybody. Okay? Now this is like the place where we think we can uh, do this. We, we go to social media and we, we see somebody post something and we just like, all right, I'm going to drop it in the comments, right? Maybe we send them even a private message or whatever, or we leave our own posts to just kind of rant about something. Everybody else is so wrong and my way is the right way, or we repost an article and we're like, this right here. Let me just say this this morning. It's cowardly to hide behind a screen. This is not where this happens, especially as the community of faith. Community of faith, if we see a brother or sister caught in sin or believing some uh, unbiblical thinking, we graciously bring it up in the cuddle courage to warn, say, hey, I saw this. Let me help me think through this. Help, I, 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 this is not line up with scripture. What you're doing, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt others. We warn everyone. But there's also a warning that also comes with teaching or instruction. Same thing, we see this in the Great Commission, right? We go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. Teaching everyone with all wisdom. And so there's a second side of the coin here. We say, hey, not that way, but this way. We know this, this line of thinking is wrong. It's going to lead you away from the Lord. But here's the way. Here is biblical truth. This is what we do. This is faithfulness. This is wisdom. 
Wisdom being an understanding of what is true and right and then applied in our life. And this is how we point to Christ in one another. Hey, Christ would call us to live this way. Christ would uh, uh, call us to do this way. Not according to traditions, not according to, you know, uh, legalistic uh, ideas, not according to this, but no, Christ. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom towards a goal. What's the goal in verse 28? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity is the goal. Growth in Christ is the goal. This is what we are committed to doing together as a family of faith. This is what, as friends of Christ, we are committed to growing in Christ. And so we work hard. We strive. You see, for this I toil. I struggle. We're striving towards this goal in our life and doing it together. See, spiritual maturity is the hard work of the church. This is what we're saved into. The lost being saved, the saved being matured, and the mature multiplied all to the glory of God. But it is not like we somehow reach a level of maturity, then we multiply because we've figured it all out. No, our whole life is one of maturity. That's the goal. Maturity is the goal, and his energy is the grace to do it. Praise God, it's not up to us. He says, this I told struggling with all... His energy. But he powerfully works within me. We just keep going step after step, struggling and striving along the way to proclaim Jesus. And he gives us exactly what we need, the strength that we need, the words that we need, exactly when we need it. And I get it. I get it. Sometimes raising kids is toil, isn't it? What Discipling our kids, what they, it's, it's more toiling and less spoiling. Small group relationships, they, they just they take work, they take energy. Relationships with the church, relationships with neighbors, other believers, right? But thank God, even in this work, it does not depend on our energy, which has its limits, does it not? Some more than others, but in His that powerfully works within us. This is what we do. This is how we proclaim, right? You know, Jesus Himself came, put on human flesh. He came and He worked hard to proclaim the word he did it his whole life i mean you just read the gospels and all this is about jesus proclaiming the word working hard struggling day and night to speak not on his own authority but in conjunction with the father who sent him john 12 says right but he says therefore he says as the father has told him christ came proclaimed the word of god proclaimed the will of god proclaimed the ways of god warned and teach and taught rather to uh, present all of us mature in christ and praise god he will be the one one day to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before the father amen that's what he is calling us to and so this proclamation that we strive is not just relegated here to the pulpit, nor online, nor uh, to a street corner for like hellfire and brimstone uh, preachers who are out there. But this proclamation, this pointing to Christ, happens in the context of relationships where our faith is lived out. See, well, what do we expect as Jesus' friends? Well, if we're faithfully following, we will, then we should expect to struggle then to build gospel community. A struggling to build gospel community. That's our, our fourth expectation here. Faith is not lived out in isolation. Our faith is not lived out. We're not become Jesus' friend. And it's not just like this private friendship that we have and we never tell anybody else about or we never invite anybody else into. 
happens in the context of community, that yes is a struggle. And as we jump into chapter 2 here, the thought continues, and there seems to be an even greater struggle here for Paul. See that? He says, I want you to know how great a struggle for them, those at Laodicea, a town just uh, a, a, a little ways from Colossae, and all those who haven't seen him face to face. He's feeling the difficulty here as he's in prison and seeking this and influencing them and discipling them because he's never met them. Remember, he's communicating through letters like you know, quill and parchment, like old school here, right? And having to deliver it by messengers. No text, there's no email, there's no you know, uh, uh, even phone or Zoom in those days. And building this gospel community. Same reason in our own life where those means, as good as they are, are aren't as, aren't as uh, 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 helpful as good old face-to-face. Relationships are built within community. They need to be in person. We need to hear and see and, uh, and feel and even smell one another. Not like a creepy way, but you know, like somebody has some BO, we need to help one another out, right? For there to be genuine gospel community. A community that's built around the three things in verse 2. Do you see him there? He's struggling here. He's building it around this encouragement, this unity and love, and this assurance in Christ, right? He's, he's, he's laboring. He's struggling. He's toiling that their hearts may be encouraged, that, that, that they would be putting courage into one another so they wouldn't give up, so they would keep going, so they would know what is true, that they would be united, that their hearts would be knit together in love. What a great picture, right? The love for God, the love for one another that would keep them close and this assurance, the full assurance the, that they would reach all the riches of the full assurance. I love that. I, I love that picture. The, the unlimited wealth of the assurance that we have of God's understanding and the, mystery, or the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, that we would be assured of who he is and what he's doing. So in the times when unbelief and doubt and fear creep in, is there we need the help of one another to understand God's ways and what's happening to, to see it and to then stay put. Stay put in Christ's love. And that takes work, doesn't it? This is work in our gospel communities. It's work, especially in some seasons, isn't it? It's harder than in others. And why is it, why is it hard work? Well, verses 3 and 4 really teach us why it's hard. In verse 3, it's because we don't know everything. We struggle to keep building this. We don't just fall into it. We don't just find this community. We struggle to work because we don't know everything. Verse 3, he says, In Christ, it's in Christ whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's not hidden in us or in our wisdom or in our ingenuity. It's in Christ that we have this wisdom and the insight into what is happening. And we're figuring it out together. We're struggling for this to, to understand who God is, who Christ is, what are we, how we're to live it out. That's this, the wisdom. Verse 4 is, why, why, why is it a struggle? Why do we continue on? Well, because we have adversaries. What it says in verse 4, he's like, I say this. He's, he's like, I'm struggling. Here's what our community, we don't know everything, but there's also, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, delusions of truth are everywhere. I'll just drop this out here for you. YouTube is a cesspool of delusions. You know, it's so easy to just take a kernel of what is true. 
Just like, just like a little bit, a, a piece of truth, a, a verse from the Bible, and to make a logical-sounding argument. Well, yeah, that sounds kind of right. But where it leads you is into isolation and away from gospel community. Away from the encouragement and the unity and love and the assurance of our faith. These things, like, this is how you know it is, to what end? To what end is what you're hearing and what you're listening to? Are they leading? Is it leading you to love Christ more and to love Christ's bride more, the church, the people of God? Because so often this is exactly opposite. The conspiracies that you'll find, they lead us to fear man and not to fear God. They cause us to doubt the sovereignty of God and lead us into isolation because these people have it all wrong. They don't know. If they knew these things, then, then they wouldn't be just going along with their merry lives. No. Indicator. Discernment alarms go off. No, we struggle to build this gospel community. There are rogue theologies out there that overemphasize one doctrine or overinterpret one verse that erodes our faith, eroding our confidence in the, in the word of God and the things of God. And what does it do? Lead us into isolation, away from the community of God, not fearing God. But here's the thing. When you're a friend of Jesus, you're friends with Jesus' friends. And we struggle to build this gospel community. It is work because we are full of sin. We don't know everything. And, there are the, and, and, and delusions are everywhere. And praise God, our Savior, our King, knows exactly that dynamic. He did it. He came, and for three years of his life, he tried to get a, a, a band of 12 young dudes to, to, to understand this, to encourage them. He, he sought unity amongst them in the church. He prayed for it in John 17. And then he was betrayed by one of them. Attacked. Led to the cross. But the struggle didn't cause him to quit. It didn't cause him to sink in despair. He knew that it would be a struggle, but he kept at it with joy. See, less do you think, like, all the expectations, like, everything that we've been called to do is like, man, this being a friend of Jesus, I don't want to be a friend with him. That sounds like no fun. It's hard. It's just a life of work. Well, lastly, you don't expect the life of following Jesus. Expect sincere joy due to gospel fruit. It's a life of joy. Look at the, look at the two bookends, the two uh, verses that hem all this in. What's the repeated word there? Just use your observation skills. 2.5 and 1.24. What's the repeated word there? Say it out loud. So I heard it, but say it louder so everyone can hear. Yes. You win. $5. It's rejoicing. The bookends of this passage. Rejoicing. Expressed joy and satisfaction in Christ Though Paul is in prison, he's never met these people. He's only heard their reputation. He has a sincere joy in Christ because he can see the gospel fruit that is happening. For them, it was in two specific ways. Despite the chaos, despite the attacks, despite the, the false theologies, their life was still marked by the biblical fruit of good order. Good order that, that, the, that despite it all, their life was not chaotic. It was not up and down. And so don't read good order like, oh, they had an airbrushed faith. They were all put together, right? 
Like the report coming back was, man, their houses were always clean. Their kids were always bathed and, and perfect. They never had any problems. Their hair was always done. Their makeup was always perfect. Their truck was always working and washed. No. It's not what this good order is, is speaking of here. Nobody has a life like that. And if that's how they're portraying, they're lying. The only thing they've perfected is the art of concealment. That's just not true of any of us. But what it means is that their life is not moving from crisis to crisis, from trouble to trouble as a result of sin, and always like back and forth, and always in a state of, of panic. But rather because of God's grace in their life, their obedience their, uh, in their life of just faithfully following Christ, it has brought a peace and an order to the rhythms of their life that are characteristic. It's not like stoic. It's not like they're unaffected, but they are just not up and down. Good order. But it also, the second, is that they have a firmness of faith. That they are settled and steadfast in their belief that God exists and is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Hebrews 11.6. This is the good fruit here. They're steady and stable in both mind and pattern of life. And how they and what their life looks like as he sees them. This biblical fruit that is uh, 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 causing great joy of satisfaction in God is because they are continuing to grow and they're standing firm and steadfast in their faith in Christ. And their obedience to Christ. And, and I'll tell you what, like you can you have seen this in your own life, right? And in the life of others and gospel community, when these things are true, it brings great joy to our hearts to see brothers and sisters walking faithfully with the Lord, right? It's easy, it's easy to attach our affections to what is out of order, what is unstable, that can lead us to discouragement or even despair. There's no shortage of reasons like that around the globe. But like we sung in the opening song, we just look around and see what God has done. See what He is doing right now in the friends of the Lord right around us, and, and, and your joy will soon store, soar. See, here's the thing. In the struggle and the striving and the suffering, as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, you will remember then what He's promised to do, and that will give you great joy. That this isn't the end. Where's our hope? Our hope is in Christ, the one who showed us how to do this. So we think of Christ's life. What did he do? He struggled. He strove. He suffered considerably more than we ever will. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12, 2, that he did it with joy. Jesus faced the cross with joy. Looking to Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, Rejoicing in his sufferings, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did. Paul's rejoicing in his sufferings. Paul is rejoicing in the fruit that is being born. And here's the thing, redemption. Expect great joy in following Jesus. Christ, yes, a life afflicted and acquainted with grief, yet full of joy. Whatever you may have expected following Jesus to be like, affirmed or easy or purpose-driven, let me assure you what Christ offers is infinitely better, 
infinitely greater. Why nothing compares to a life of following him because no one compares to Jesus. But this is the life we pray for. This is in line with the will of God as we've seen in recent weeks. This is the life that we seek after. Why? Because it is a life that pleases God. Praise God, even in the midst of the suffering and the striving and the struggle, He gives grace to help every step of the way. So let's pray and ask God's help to that end. Join me in prayer now as I lead us in this. God in heaven, here we are. Yeah, here we are with our minds fixed on you, Jesus, in awe of uh, your greatness, in awe of who you are and how awesome you are. Marveling at a life that Paul could live and then even looking at our own life and, uh, and maybe seeing some similarities, maybe convicted in many ways, Lord. And Lord, there are some among us who are suffering and need your grace. And so would you provide that even now, God, for uh, in, in, our, in our moments where we are sacrificing much, where, where the suffering is real and acute, would you give grace for that? And God, others are just struggling struggling to uh, just take the next step, struggling to know what to do, struggling to bring up Christ, struggling to muster up some courage to say something or do something. Would you give wisdom? Wisdom about what is true, wisdom about what is right, and wisdom as to what to do. that you give it generously, you give it abundantly. All we have to do is ask and you're never perturbed with us for asking again and asking for more. So here we are, asking for wisdom. And God, whatever is true of our life, you know the details of every person in here. You know what awaits us this afternoon and what awaits us tomorrow morning. Whatever it might be, give us joy, God. us to rejoice, to be satisfied in Christ, no matter what. Rejoice knowing that we're your friend, that we know your name, that your reputation is one of goodness and greatness and grandeur. So we worship you, we follow you. Help us, God. We pray these things now in the strong name of Jesus.